Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio this week from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser from Motley Fool Supernova, Matt Argusinger, and from Million Dollar Portfolio, Ron Gross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, How hey, you hey, doing? Chris. We've got the latest results for restaurant stocks, health stocks, tech stocks, and more. We will answer your questions as we dip into the Fool mailbag. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin this week with the big macro. The U.S. economy added 142,000 jobs in August. The unemployment rate fell to 6.1%. And Ron, when you look at the reaction on Wall Street, this seemed like one of those meh <laughs> jobs reports. It was a little seesaw-y. Before the market opened, we got a pop, and then it kind of went away. I don't think these numbers are great. I mean, it, it breaks the streak of six months of 200,000 jobs created or more. Um, so that's not great. However, it's just a month. Um, I don't think anybody's panicking over a month. We, we did create jobs. The unemployment rate did tick down. Um, those are both good things. Um, I think a lot of traders are hopeful that this means we get a little bit more uh, – more leeway in terms of easing from the Fed and that interest rates will stay lower for a longer period of time. But I really don't think the Fed is being influenced by one month of data. It's just one data point, and I don't, I don't think it overrides all the other data we have. All right, let's get to company news, and we'll start with the biggest public company of all. Apple had planned to spend this week building Buzz for their event on September 9th, when they will unveil the iPhone 6 and the much-rumored iWatch. Uh, but instead, Apple spent the week mired in the celebrity photo scandal. CEO Tim Cook said that iCloud accounts were compromised, but that none of the Apple IDs and passwords leaked from the company's servers. And... Matt, he, he was kind of doing a balancing act. It, it, I, I almost felt bad for him because, on the one hand, he had to acknowledge the problem here, um, but he also had to deny that they were taking any sort of a lax approach to security. Right. I mean, ultimately, this is about you know just assuring people that if you buy a, an Apple product, an iPhone especially, that things are you know your, your username and passwords are going to be secure. Uh, the ultimate question here: Does any of this do the celebrity photo you know, that have been spread around that have been hacked? Is that going to prevent people from buying Apple products? Uh, in, in my opinion, no way. I mean, I, 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 don't, I certainly don't have any nude pictures in my iCloud. At least I don't think I do. And if, if, even if someone hacked in right now and stole a bunch of those pictures, I still, I still love the iPhone product and I, I love the Apple products. It's not going to prevent me or any of the average show from buying. I, I completely agree with that. I would like to see how it does shake out, though, because we're still a little bit fuzzy. It wasn't the iCloud. It was the iCloud. People were perhaps victims of phishing attacks, pH phishing attacks, and, and are themselves in a certain way to blame um, for get themselves getting hacked. I would like to know exactly what's going on, because as they implement new security procedures for iCloud, it certainly seems that they are recognizing vulner- vulnerability, but yet they're claiming it wasn't their fault. Well, and Jason, if the reports we're seeing about what may be included in the iWatch are to believed, um, one of the features may include uh, the financial sector where people can use the iWatch to hook it up to their credit card accounts. It seems like they're um, they're just bringing more and more data into their devices. Yeah, there's no question. We talked about this earlier uh, you know, in the week that I think 
the, these are the kinds of things that will help sort of dictate how consumers pay for things. And, and you know, I was using just myself as an example. When the, more and more of these stores that I go to, I, I don't want to use my debit card anywhere anymore because, you know, if that information is compromised and someone gets a hold of my checking account, they can drain that thing and then I'm stuck in a cash crunch. And if I just use my American Express card everywhere, you know, I can, I can pay that, you know, online as I use it. But at least if that information is compromised and someone starts using that card, well, it's not a cash crunch. It's just a, someone's running on my credit card, and, and that ultimately is American Express's problem. They'll deal with it. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know that I'm necessarily, you know, jumping uh, in to to put my information all all into all into a device just so that I I can you know pay for it as opposed to using a card. I don't, I don't think it's it, it's not there's not that much friction there yet. Well, I think what 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 Apple is always optimized on is usability versus security. And I, I, and I think, honestly, I think that's still going to win in the consumer mind. I think if something's usable, it's easy, it's efficient. I mean, if I, ha- if I can buy a new smartwatch and I can go into a Starbucks and with a flick of my wrist, I can pay for a coffee and walk out, uh, that, is, that is certainly a convenience I want to have. And it, this, this, the secondary thought of whether someone's going to steal that data from me is, is way down the line. So, no question, because I mean, the consumer's perception, and it's the right one, is it's, not, it's ultimately not their liability, right? How much do you think they have riding on this event next week? Because it really does seem like more so than the usual iPhone upgrade, this one has a little bit more pressure attached to it. I, I do. I mean, we were talking before the show, you know, the thing with the, with the whole idea of, of iWatch and wearable technology is that there really isn't a market yet. And I think what a lot of people are thinking, and especially a lot of Apple's competitors are thinking, is that this is Apple's opportunity to define that market. Uh, and so if they come out with a successful iWatch, something that people are going to be excited about, it could actually create a new market that you know, it could be big. Yeah, I think there's a lot riding on this announcement, which is a shame because they always disappoint on these announcements, <laughs> except for back in the day. Um, they've got to come up with something big. The stock will take a hit in the short term. But we're not short-term investors. We're long-term. So we, we, should, we probably can ignore that short-term noise, see what the products are, and, and invest for the future. Back in February, CVS Caremark announced it was going to stop selling cigarettes and other tobacco products on October 1st. This week, the company announced it is ending the sale of those products one month earlier than they had planned, as well as a brand new corporate name, CVS Health. And Jason, shares hitting an all-time high this week. Yeah. I mean, I know there was a lot made of this initially. I mean, let's look at this for what it is, though. I mean, cigarettes, tobacco products represent about 1.5% of CVS's total sales. So, it, it, this is just a drop in the bucket for them. And really, I admire the company for making this kind of a move. They are they're making a statement. This is what they stand for. you know. And so, eliminating things like cigarettes, which are obviously sort of at odds with, with the other sort of health products that they sell and prescription drugs and whatnot. I think it makes sense. Uh, you know, I, I probably people will get a little bit granular, granular with it and start looking at all of the things that they sell that still may not be perceived as quite healthy. Uh, but they still rely primarily on prescription drugs for their sales. I mean, that's 70% of their sales uh, on an annual basis. So, so I think this is just a move in line with what they really want to stand for, and, and they're standing behind it, and I, I admire them for doing it. Even though cigarettes represent a relatively small percentage, as you said, I'll be interested to see if there's bleed over. You stop in for a pack of cigarettes, you also pick up a drink, you also pick up a pack of gum. Um, there's there's ancillary purchases that go on, especially for people who are stopping in almost daily, if not you know weekly, um, and they're 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 repeat consumers because. They're addicted, quite frankly. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if there's a bleed over. That's a good point there because those purchases ultimately in total are about 14.5% of their total sales. So beyond just cigarettes, those drinks and other sort of general merchandise items are, are you know, more significant. And so that, that'll be something worth keeping an eye on. 
Shares of Yum! Brands down this week after the parent company of KFC, Taco Bell, and Pizza Hut announced that same-store sales in China fell 13% for the latest quarter due to a health scare with some bad chicken. And Matt, Yum! Brands called this issue with their poultry supplier a one-time issue. This happened just a couple less than two years ago. Right. This is this has happened at least a couple of times. I feel like we were last year having almost the exact same <laughs> conversation. Uh, you know, there's a thing in, in in investment analysis. We we call them we, we tend to call them recurring, non-recurring problems. And I think that is exactly what Yum Brands has. They obviously have not figured out uh, this supplier problem. Yeah, you mentioned the 13 percent, uh, you know, same store sales decline in China. That they they were down 11 percent. Last year, so they're lapping that, you know, this year, and so you, you can just—it just shows you what kind of problems they have. I know they've talked about uh, spinning off the China unit, but as an investor, as an analyst, you look at this and you say, well, you know, there are there are bigger problems, there are management problems here. They, they've not figured this out. There's relationship problems, there's contract problems, and uh, you know, this is certainly not. I mean, Yum Brands to- total revenue hasn't budged really in three years, and so. You know, take a very skeptical eye to this company. There's there's some problems here that are bigger problems than just one-off supplier problems. And we talk all the time about companies that have big opportunities in China. But in the case of Yum Brands, it really oh, I mean, it's, China it, is hugely important. More than half of their total sales come from China. It's huge, and and so that the, obviously they got b- b- problems there. But you know what? Even as a U.S. consumer, when I hear things like this. It doesn't make me want to go to Taco Bell or KFC or Pizza Hut right here in the U.S., which is still obviously a good chunk of their sales as well. So it's a, it's a huge overall problem, and it's becoming a brand and a marketing problem for them, too. Coming up, are you ready for some football? One company sure is. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Can buy me Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, and Ron Gross. Guys, the NFL season has officially begun, and this week Twitter unveiled a new feature called NFL Timelines that makes it even easier for people to follow their favorite teams. Uh, as someone on Twitter and a fan of pro football, I appreciate this, Jason, but how's this going to help the business? Well, I mean, that, that's that's really just it. This is a play for the domestic market opportunity that stands in front of Twitter, and, and that really... The domestic market is is their most profitable. I mean, to put that into context, when you look at the the uh, international RPM or the, or the impressions per thousand uh, ads, there international, which is by far and away their biggest base, it, it comes out to about sixty one cents. Uh, domestic, though, is about three dollars and forty seven cents. So, domestically speaking, this is this is going to be the more profitable opportunity, and this has sort of been the the challenge for Twitter is to grow that domestic base, that active user base. They're playing in one of our biggest passions here with the NFL, right? And I mean, I think that if if what they did with the World Cup is any indicator of what they can do here with the NFL, then this is going to be a big big success because you know I, I looked at the World Cup and I was relatively apathetic towards it. I didn't really care too much about as it as a sporting event. As a sporting event, yeah. I mean, I just didn't really care about it. What Twitter did that actually piqued my interest in it, and it made it accessible to me anywhere at any time, and, and I used it. And so, you know, I, I certainly was following the game along last night on, on Twitter, and I, I think it's just going to be something that gets better and better, and I suspect we'll see uh, the result is is more engagement, more users, and that's good for Twitter. Well, as a former golf pro, are you, are you going to encourage Twitter to hook something up with the Ryder Cup to get you a little bit more excited? I, I am absolutely <laughs> certain that the Ryder Cup will have a presence on Twitter, and, you know, the, like the Golf Channel alone does a really good job of promoting that stuff. I don't know that it will be 
something quite as big as the World Cup. But hey, I mean, a guy, a guy can a hope, right? <laughs> radio at fool.com is our email address. That's radio at fool.com. Let's dip into the full mailbag, guys. Uh, from Ken Furlong in Virginia, I was wondering if you could spend some time addressing the issue of performing research online, which sources are most accurate, critical differences in reporting metrics, and so on. It's obvious there are a lot of pitfalls one might encounter given the complexity of researching a company and its stock. Um, Ron, good point there because yeah. not all sources are accurate. Not all are the, up to the same standards. Yeah, we have so much information av- available to us because of the internet. It's an amazing thing, but it also can be dangerous and you have to know um, what you're looking at. So you can obviously go to companies like fool.com and uh, punch in a ticker symbol <laughs> <What> a <shameless laughs> plug. And, and get great information. I think Yahoo Finance uh, does a great job. Um, if you want a snapshot and some key metrics, some key financial information, information. Uh, I think Morningstar does a really good job as well, whether you subscribe to their, their premium product or just use their free website. Um, but I think importantly, if you have the time and you're really interested in learning about companies and making sure you know where the information comes from, go to the source documents themselves um, on the SEC website, sec.gov. Companies, by law, public companies, have to report quarterly and annual data, tell you how their business is doing, give you their financial metrics, and you know it's coming right from the horse's mouth. And and I think that's that's the cleanest source. Yeah, and the the plus there is they have the enforcement of law on their side. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) I, I will add, whenever you read commentary, not just numbers, but you read commentary on a site, take it with a grain of salt because you don't know if the author has a conflict of interest or not. And I think more often than not, they do. Email from Arash Rod in California. He writes, I have investment in stocks and now I'm thinking about expanding into real estate. However, I find investing in real estate a bit challenging. Are there stocks I can invest in that would mirror real estate? What do you guys think about REITs? Uh, Matty, great question. Pros and cons of real estate investment trusts? I, I think generally I'm, I'm favorable to investing in REITs. I mean, it, it is a way for an individual investor to invest in real estate. The, the thing with uh, with REITs that you have to be a little careful of is, you know, over leverage. Uh, you know, REITs, because they pay out, uh, because they're required by law to pay out 90% of their income in dividends, um, they get uh, tax benefits for, for doing so. Um, the only way they really raise capital is either by issuing stock or, or raising debt. Uh, and so just make sure you, you, know, you check your debt to equity ratios. Make sure that you know, your company isn't overcapitalized. Look at debt versus market cap. Um, and of course, you don't want a, a, a REIT that's constantly issuing new stock and just diluting existing shareholders. Um, a couple that I, I follow that come to mind, I, you know, I, I look at, and I think actually it's in the MDP portfolio, to give Ron a little plug here, is Retail <laughs> Opportunity Investment Corp. Yeah. Very well run REIT. Uh, ROIC is the ticker. Uh, they do uh, mostly uh, strip mall commercial real estate. Uh, in, on the West Coast, uh, a good one. One that I that I follow that I've actually pitched to our Rule Breakers team several times is uh, the ticker is ARE, um, and the the name the company is escaping me, but it's it's one of the largest uh, real estate companies owning um, biotech laboratories and um, and medical science type uh, buildings and stuff. Very very stable. One caveat I'll throw out there is uh, what will likely be a rising interest rate environment at some point in this country is typically bad for REITs. Um, so they could come under pressure at some point, not certainly not in the near term, but over, let's say, the next three to five years as interest rates rise. But, Maddie, to something you touched on earlier, the dividends that REITs pay out. I, and I'm, I don't own any REITs. And I'm uh, like our listener, I, I find real estate sort of challenging uh, to evaluate. But I will say that is a really powerful sort of 
emotional thing almost where it's like, well, wait a minute. What is the dividend they're paying out? 9%, 10%? It, it just draws me in every time. Well, and another risk factor, by the way, the name it came to me, it's Alexandria Real Estate Properties, ARE is the, is the ticker. Uh, one of the things you should look out for is if you do see a REIT which has a 7, 8, 9, even 10% yield, Usually that is a leveraged uh, security REIT vehicle, which means that REIT is investing, take, taking on leverage and investing in mortgage-backed securities or commercial-backed uh, securities. Those are l- much more uh, riskier. Even though the dividend looks great, just, just certainly up your risk uh, tolerance with those. Email from Neil Fletcher in California. Since I started renting Volkswagen diesels on vacation in Europe a decade ago, I've been a big fan of their performance and frugality. I'm happy to see a new crop of clean diesel cars for sale here in the U.S. Can you recommend a stock to capitalize on growing diesel car ownership in the USA? Thanks. Uh, first of all, kudos to Neil for the vacation in Europe. Mm. Uh, and the use of the word frugality. Yeah, I mean, that's a good 50-cent word. Gotta love it. Uh, what do you think, Jason? So, I, I, you know, I, I think there's probably a bigger opportunity in the in the electric vehicle uh, market, but diesel certainly is is out there, and, and it's seen as a very viable alternative fuel. Uh, I would be looking at the company that, that comes to mind here first and foremost is a company called Cummins. And the ticker is CMI. It's a company we cover here at The Fool, actually. And they, they do a lot in the building of the engines for these, these diesel vehicles. Uh, it's a bigger company, $25 billion or so market cap, so it's relatively stable. Uh, a smaller name in the field that's less, it's less about diesel and more about natural gas is Westport Innovations, uh, WPRT. Um, and then, you know, the, the third one I would throw in there is, is playing into another alternative fuel. It would be clean energy fuels, which is really – that's the one building out the, the uh, natural gas stations for the trucking industry. So I kind of look at those three and think they make a neat basket of, of alternative fuel uh, holdings there, uh, giving you some good exposure to some market leaders and, you know, companies that are definitely shaping that space. So, so certainly worth a look. Uh, Maddie, we got about a minute left. Uh, Jason mentioned the electric car space. I'd be remiss if I did not mention that Tesla Motors made it official this week. The five is five billion dollar gigafactory that's, they're building. That's right. Sparks, Nevada. Hey, you know, and and you know, they got a, what one and a quarter billion, I guess, uh, kickback from Nevada to to do it. Um, this is this is. Uh, I mean, this we've talked about in the past. I mean, this is Tesla's big step towards becoming, you know, not certainly not just a, a great electric car company, but a battery company, which which has a lot of different optionalities related to that business. But yeah, certainly they made the decision. We, Nevada was sort of the rumor all along. Um, that's going to be a big development for the state of Nevada and for Tesla for the next few years. All right. Thanks, guys. Keep the emails coming. Radio at Fool.com is our email address. Radio at Fool.com. Take me riding in the car, car. Take me riding in the car, car. Take you riding in my car, car. I'll take you riding in my car. <laughs> Up next, we're going to look for investing opportunities in Russia and Japan. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Phil Mann is the portfolio manager at Motley Fool Funds, and he joins me in studio now. Thanks for being here. How you doing, Chris? I'm doing well. There is there is a lot going on around the world that I want to get to. I the last time you were here, we were we were talking about your upcoming trip to Japan, yes. which you've now taken. No longer upcoming. No longer upcoming. We will get to that, but let, but let's start with let's start with Russia, yeah. um, uh, and everything that's going on with Russia and Ukraine, and as uh, someone who could have seen this coming. 
what do you think when you're watching this? Yeah, I mean, you've, I, you've done business in yeah. Russia. Putin is a leader that you've watched very closely. What goes through your mind as an investor as you watch all of this play out? So I think that the biggest thing uh, for for us, and 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 I am very much an adherent of you know of of John Templeton, who was really the pioneer of international investing. So who after World War II went and bought every European company he could find that traded at less than one US dollar per share and did pretty well because he was, you know, he was he was buying things at a point in time in which people are panicking. It may not seem like it makes me to be a, a great American, but we're actually looking at Russian companies now more interested, you know, and we're more interested than we have been in years. Uh, Tim Hansen, who's uh, my co-portfolio managers, and I went to a Russian conference uh, in um, early January or early February, I should say, and came away with a couple of ideas of companies that we would we would like to buy, companies that actually didn't seem like they were stealing from shareholders. Um and um, which is kind of a thing. You yeah. know, I, I mean, if you're going to set a baseline, you know, step one, not stealing from us it is mu- pretty good. <laughs> if, nothing, if nothing else, it must be interesting to look at international companies and come away with the thing. Oh, you know, say what you want about the United States and Wall Street. That's right. But we're pretty good on the corporate governance relative to the yes. rest of the world. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and some surprising places. But you know what? What what is always the case and you can think about it in the united states as well and go you well that's obviously true is that corporate governance is driven by corporations themselves i mean obviously countries there are certain countries where the level of you know where the standards are a lot lower and there's countries where standards are higher but you can't look at every american company and say their corporate governance is the same because it's not and the same is exact tr- exactly true of russian companies and you know we've identified a few and had identified a few that we actually thought were uh, you know were 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 being run for shareholders which is which is quite a concept and so we you know, again, you know, as you know, from a world citizenship basis, maybe it doesn't make me the greatest person, but we, you know, we actually are pretty interested in, you know, in in some of these companies right now. Well, and it's know. it's interesting because you and I were talking earlier this week, and I I think I was uh, complaining or possibly even definitely ranting, complaining <laughs> or or possibly even ranting about yeah. some of the people who are going on the financial media networks and saying the market is going to drop and be. The reason being, there are all of these hotspots around the world, but it sounds yeah. like you guys are taking the opposite tack, which is, no, not that it's necessarily great for stability in any one particular region, but it yeah. does create opportunities for investors. Now, so let me say something that is, uh, that, that, that is, I, you know, something that I have observed, and, you know, it's, it, it's, it's just a fact. A lot of markets are at all time highs. So, I think a lot of people have failed to react to some really interesting and really horrifying political, you know, geopolitical issues out there. And you look at a country like the Ukraine, and it is actually not that systemically important. So you don't really expect the you know issues in the Ukraine to to impact the stock market for example, in the United States or Canada or even Western Europe. But there are so many different things that are going on, and and it doesn't seem like markets have reacted. But where markets have reacted is in places like Russia, which is directly involved. So I, I actually – the folks who have gone on to CNBC and said the markets have gonna, are going to crash – they basically could have been playing that same clip from 2010 on, and 
you know, they they were not very right then. Uh, eventually, they'll be right. And so that's good news, I guess. Um, I do expect that at some point uh, markets will react to a lot of these things because there are a lot of things that are going to require reactions and and reactions on a geo- geopolitical basis are sometimes not very good for companies. I don't want to discount the effect that this growing and consistent noise, because you're right, these are people who have been making predictions like this for a, a while, and eventually yep. they'll be right. Yeah. Um, and we'll hear about it. And we'll, <laughs> I was right. <laughs> uh, but but I, I, I don't want to discount that for the average investor, sometimes that noise takes it it's toll, and, of course. And what do you, what do you say to? It someone? does for us too. I mean, we're not we're, we're 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 human beings, and you know, it's depressing to turn on the news. And when you're depressed, it's not a very logical decision, and a, not a very logical reaction to say, "Well, I'm going to invest more money," because you know it. it when you are depressed and when you are sad about things or when you're concerned about things, your instinct is to pull in. You know, it's to you know, it's to lower the sails. It's to wait out the storm. But time and time again, it has been shown that that the time to really get involved in the markets is when there are crises. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Bill Mann, portfolio manager at Motley Fool Funds. Uh, the last time you were here, we talked about uh, how for the month of August, you and every member of your portfolio team – you guys were fanning out literally uh, around the globe. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, you went to Japan. I did. Uh, I'm it, still jet lagged. It's, it's, um, <laughs> can we take a break? <laughs> we'll see if we can get you some coffee during the break. Um, not your first time to yeah. Japan. What struck you in terms of changes since the last time you were there? So the really interesting thing about Japan is that it is, by some measures, the second largest and some measures, the third largest market by value uh, in in the world. But it really does play small. I mean, you go to Japan and they're in the process of debating things. For example, you know, to talk about corporate governance, a requirement or a guideline, not even a requirement, that companies have one outside director on their boards. The companies won. Wow. Yeah, it doesn't. So most Japanese companies, not only are they generally all Japanese people on the board, which is fine, but they are generally speaking all employees. Now, let me ask you something. If you're an employee and the CEO is on the board, how are you going to how are you going to follow your responsibility as a board member when you could get fired for, you know, for 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 uh for those duties. I was going to say, I think in politics, the phrase that comes to mind is voting the party line. Voting the party line. Exactly. Exactly. Don't rock that boat. So the really interesting thing in Japan, and one of the reasons that I, that, 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 that I went, is that we had gotten rumblings through 2013 that this time things actually really were different. Japan has been in what can only be described as a slumber for the last twenty years, they, you know, there's there's a lost generation of of, of employees. Um, the market is still down about sixty percent from its peak. And stop and think about that for a second. What kind of a panic would be? You know, would would there be here? If the market twenty years later has still failed to undestroy that much wealth. That would be. It would be. It would be massive. <laughs> 
I'm just trying to think of the the, the longest sustained period of, of of a down market, and that it would be no, it's, unprecedented. It's unprecedented, and yet you go to Japan, and Japan is still one of the most important consumer markets for very high end, you know, for very high end goods makers, and it's there's no panic there, and it's always kind of made me wonder why. Why has there never you know why you know if it if it was Greece, everything would be on fire now. Japan, they're like, well, okay. So, what do you attribute that to? Corporate, so, just just the general culture. I think culture has something to do with it, but I also think that people outside of Japan have misunderstood what has been going on inside of Japan. And let's you know, let's let's not say, hey, we thought it's bad and it's actually really good. It has been bad, but Japan still has an uh, you know an unemployment rate, which is the envy of the world. You know, it's not like France, where if they get down into single digits. They're going to declare another national holiday. Uh, in, in Japan, it's it's remained in six percent range. But what they haven't been able to do is 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 figure out how to make the economy grow again. And they have in Japan a demographic time bomb that's that that's coming up. It is a population that is shrinking. The labor participation is 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 actually shrinking. So they're trying to figure out how to make the economy grow so that they don't end up with the the promises that they've made to their citizens drowning the national budget. So you think they might actually be turning it around. You think it's different. Absolutely. This time. Yeah. What, I, I, what makes you think that? Well, they're doing things now. Like so, if you're in a country where the the stock market has gone down sixty percent and has never recovered, you might do what the average Japanese person has done, which is to put your money into cash. And not only cash, they live, they, they leave it in a passbook account that, that generates zero income, but it's not losing money. So, you know, you feel good. So the government is doing everything it can do to get people to start to take some risks with their money, including doing it for them. The government is actually getting ready to take some of the pension funds that they control and invest them in the Japanese stock market. They are there's 126 million people in Japan, give or take, and they want they want to do everything that they can do to, you know, make inflation, you know, bring inflation to Japan, 2% per year or they're going to die trying. And I you know, I really think that they're going to do it. I mean, they they have tried everything else at this point. So, you know, so I I am hopeful for Japan for the first time in at least 10 years. Now, for someone listening who hears market's been down 60%, but it might be turning around and is thinking to themselves, hey, I don't really have any investing exposure to Japan. What What is a way for a beginner to at least explore yeah. their options of investing in Japan. Yeah, I mean there are th- th- there are mutual funds that out there that are that are focused on Japan or are focused on Asia. Uh, you know there are there there are very um, well constructed ETFs. I mean I think there's probably thirty different ETFs that point to different parts of the Japanese market. And um, you know the thing that I would say about about that is that if you want to get exposure to the Japanese market, you don't necessarily want to be uh, exposed to the largest company. So if you look for you, if you look for an ETF uh, that that focus on focuses on Japanese small caps, that's probably where you want to be. Uh, before we wrap up, uh, we are now kind of in the home stretch of 2014. 
Uh, I'm curious if there is anything in particular you're watching uh, over the next four months, uh, maybe something that you're hoping for. I don't know about you, but I'm pleasantly surprised at the market's performance to this point. I, I, yeah. really, I think back to my mindset in January, and I really was sort of bracing myself for, Ooh, this is, this is going to be one of those years we're just right. going to have to get through. Uh, in general, it's been a lot better than I expected. Um, it it but- has been good. Yeah. Um, I'd say that the really the, the, the biggest thing to keep in mind when you're talking about the U.S. stock market is that most of the gains and not all of them, because I don't think it I, I don't think it's valid to say, well, the, the P.E. ratio of the S&P 500 is X, because a lot of companies within the S&P 500, particularly a lot of the financials on an accounting basis, are losing money. They may not be, you know, they may not be losing money on a real basis, but on an accounting basis, they are. But it is still important to note that a lot of the gains have been began have been because of margin expansion, or excuse me, um, multiple expansion, as opposed to actual growth in you know in in uh, uh, earnings for the companies. So I, it's that doesn't necessarily mean that the market is wrong. It is anticipating, and the market is a very very efficient anticipating machine. So it is forecasting more earnings growth from the from American companies than it had in you know in a long time. Is there any particular industry that you think presents an opportunity or I I know because we've talked about this before as someone who at his core is a value investor yeah. in general you're looking out at a market where there's not a ton of cheap stocks to be found. Right. I still think that uh I still think that financials are kind of hated. I mean, you know, every time you turn on the news, one of the big banks has, you know, had some multi-billion dollar fine. But you know who's not getting fined is the smaller banks, you know. And uh, when you – when the average investor who is investing thematically says, I want in or out, they don't necessarily say, I want out of the big financials but into the little ones. They just say, give me out of financials. And so I would say that, uh, that that if you are an enterprising investor, which I desperately hope that many Motley Fool, uh, you know, m- many of our listeners are, that you start to look at some of the small banks. You can read more from Bill Mann and his colleagues by going to foolfunds.com. Sign up for Declarations, which is their free monthly newsletter. Just go to foolfunds.com, type in your email address. Thanks for being here, man. It's good to see you again, Chris. Coming up, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, and Ron Gross once again. Guys, before we get to the stocks on our radar... Ever have one of those times when one of your kids takes your smartphone and then spends hundreds of dollars buying things without your permission? Ron, did that ever happen? <laughs> Maybe this, once or This twice. week, the Federal Trade Commission announced that Google has agreed to pay $19 million to consumers whose children did just that. Uh, it turns out the Android App Store may be just a little bit too easy to shop in. Not the first time this has happened. Earlier this year, Apple paid $32.5 million, uh, in a, in similar settlement. Um, that's never happened to you? Just- no, he's, my son is guilty of, of using up my data, which, which, has, which is expensive <laughs> oh, yeah. as well. 
Um, but I mean, I think that's a supervision issue, as I do think this is as well. I'm surprised the FTC holds holds Google and Apple responsible for stuff like this. Although, if if the, you don't need parental permission to start racking up the bell, I don't know. It's not password protected. Aren't I mean my. All of our stuff App is so like with Amazon no, and whatnot. Right. Yeah. I mean, everything you have yeah. to enter a code before the purchase can be finalized. So I those, just, well, those, those young whippersnappers, you know, they just they just know how to get around. They <laughs> hack their way through that. Yeah, just like, just like the iCloud, they're hacking everything. These you, days. you know who this is going to be a problem for in just a couple of years? Our man behind the glass, Steve Broido, because his his little boy is getting older. And Steve, another one on the way any moment. That is correct. Yes. Thank, yes. And thank, our son has done this exactly. Yesterday, we we're playing with the Talking Tom app. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that thing basically. <laughs> begs you to buy a lot of other things. <laughs> is, that, is that what Tom talks about? Just Pretty much. Get your parents' wallet and uh, Ron. What's on your radar this week? All right, I'm going to go back to a deep value opportunity. Crocs, C R O X. Uh, they recently received a 200 million dollar investment from the Blackstone Group. They're reorganizing to um, improve profitability. They're uh, reducing their store count. They're cutting 10 percent of the workforce. Uh, I think there's 33 percent upside easily to the stock right now as part of the reorg. So I think it looks good for those that like a good deep value. Steve, question about Crocs. Crocs seems like one of those companies that's been in and out and in and out again. I just can't figure out what to make it this my question for you is can they please move beyond shoes <laughs> they that is certainly their bread and butter and they're actually going back even more to their their bread and butter these plastic injection molding they're kind of moving away from fashion which didn't work and doubling down on that good old clog and some of the, the derivatives of the clog so i can't help you there steve got two words for you crocs smartwatch <laughs> think about it. Ah, there it is. <laughs> I was thinking they'd it. go the go after coach and maybe go the briefcase route. <laughs> Matty Argusinger, what's on your radar? Sure, uh, you know uh, Tile Shock ticker TTS has piqued my interest uh, lately. It's one we own in in the Supernova portfolio. Uh, you know, home improvement retailer. They just cracked the hundred store mark. The stock's been cut in half this past year. They had some short reports that came out uh, about sourcing issues in China. There's also been some negative trends in the existing uh, home market that's affected spending there, but. The one thing that's really caught my eye is that the executives, a lot of the directors and executives at the company, have bought roughly three or four million dollars um, in stock over the past few months. Um, and whenever I see that, especially that amount for a small company like Tile Shop, uh, it certainly it certainly has my attention. Steve, how should investors think about a company that's making a, a product like this that seems unlimited in scope? Unlimited in scope. I mean, I just mean, the fact tiles, that you can all kinds of different. Well, yes. what I, I would say that the, the best thing about Tile Shop is the fact that this, the variety is just is just enormous. I mean, you can go to if you go to Home Depot, you might find two or three brands, and half of them are broken in the boxes. But if you go to you know Tile Shop, really any color, any type of stone, imagine. And the showroom experience is a big deal, right. Jason. Yeah, I know. I've always said golf is not an investment that I would want to touch, and typically uh, that's the case. However, a recent IPO, uh, Club Corp Holdings, uh, ticker is MYCC, uh, these guys actually have a very interesting position. They own a bunch of golf clubs around the country, and essentially this is an industry where scale is crucial. So the more clubs they own, the more they can ring out that cost structure and, and, and become profitable, and they, they bring the costs of being a member out of the club down, so it opens up opportunities for people to join clubs. Uh, so taking a very close look at this one. Steve? One tip at the uh, golf tee. Do you play golf, Steve? I don't. No. Okay. Well, I don't think you deserve a tip, though. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's going to do it for this week's show. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. We'll see you next week.